scripture for this morning will come from Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. So hear now the word of the Lord. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, about 100 years after the death of Jesus, a Christian named Justin sat down to write what would become one of the most famous writings in history. And he wanted to do two things. First, he wanted to convince the emperor of Rome to convert to Christianity, which is a bold strategy, considering Christians at this point were a persecuted small minority, and yet he sat down to write to try to convert the emperor of Rome. It didn't work. The second reason he sat down to write was to try to convince both the emperor, but also broader Roman culture, to stop killing Christians. And that didn't work. We know him today as Justin Martyr, because he eventually would be killed for his own faith. And one of the most Moving and famous lines from this work called The First Apology, Justin wrote this. Again, writing to the emperor of Rome, saying, please don't kill us. Yet he says, but since we do not place our hopes on the present order, we are not troubled by being put to death, since we will have to die somehow in any case. That is a, it's a bold and, and really, in many ways, uh, courageous statements. Um, but what I find most shocking about, about Justin's writings or about his life or about what would happen in the years after this is that around the first century, about 50 years before Justin probably wrote that, there were only about 10,000 Christians in the entire world. Around 180, there were 10,000 Christians in all of the world. And even though Rome would soon set its sight to both persecute, kill, and try to suppress the Christian movement from 180 to 280, uh, scholars would say that the growth in the church probably went from 10,000 Christians to around 200,000 Christians. And then from 280 to 380, despite more persecution and destruction against the church levied by Rome, the church grew probably from 200,000 Christians in the entire world to five to six million. The explosive growth happens from 180 to 380 in the church. And I'm, I'm left with like wrestling through the question, how did that happen? And a part of why I'm, I'm so curious about that question is because we in America, in our own context, are experiencing the exact opposite, which is instead of massive church increase, we're, we're experiencing massive decline in church attendance in Christianity. Now, one of the most uh, compelling and disturbing recent studies I uh, saw was a study by Barna uh, that, that studied the, 
the rate of practicing Christians among U.S. adults. And the two qualities to a practicing Christian for them would be, one, that, that that person has attended church in the last month, and two, that they would define their faith as being very important to them. That number of U.S. adults was around 50% in 2009. In 11 years, that number is now 25%. Then in a little over 10 years, the number of people who in our culture who've attended church in the last month and would say their Christianity is very important to them has been cut in half in 10 years. And that's disturbing, which has made me ask, what, like, what are we living in the midst of? Why is there such incredible decline in Christianity while we're reading a book in Revelation that was written right on the cusp of massive increase in Christian attendance in church life? And the answer to both those questions, why are we experiencing such decline, and why did the first century church experience such incredible growth, I think both of those answers lie in the book of Revelation. To understand our own decline and to understand their success, we have to understand Revelation. And so last week we began a series, Everything Sad and Untrue. We started with Revelation 1 last week, and this week we're going to look at two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3. And these are two chapters written directly from Jesus, these are direct words from Jesus to the church, words I think they listened and gave heed to, which meant to two, which led to 200 years of massive church growth because they listened to the voice of Jesus, his word for them in this moment. And these words became the siren song of the church and led to incredible growth. In these seven letters, I think, are really important guidance for us as we navigate a very different cultural moment in our culture. Now, if you're sitting there like, wait a minute, how are we going to cover this? We're talking two chapters, there's seven letters to seven different churches, and what you read a second ago wasn't even in the two chapters we're supposed to preach on. And here's where I have good news for you. Seven letters, two chapters, lots of words. Jesus is just saying two things to his church. He has two messages for his church that became the defining quality of the church for the next 200 years. So that's the good news. There's still a lot to cover, but there's only two messages you have to remember in these letters, in these two chapters. In the first message Jesus has for his church is do not compromise your allegiance to me. The first message for Jesus to, to church in Revelation is do not compromise your uh, allegiance to me. And the reason why uh, I read actually chapters not, in, or verses not in Revelation 2 and 3 is because I wanted to read what sets up these two chapters. And what sets up these two chapters is this incredibly terrifying vision of Jesus that we're given. This is the image we're getting, the, the picture of Jesus painted for us before he gets up to speak to his church. And what the image we get is that Jesus' hair is white, white as snow, which is a reference back to the book of Daniel. His eyes are like, like fire, right? Anytime you've seen someone passionate with something to say, their eyes light up. His eyes are full of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters, like standing in front of Niagara Falls. And from his mouth is a sword. This image is not meant uh, to remind us of the images we probably grew up with Jesus if you grew up in church and were in Sunday school where Jesus is, is snuggling a lamb and he's, you know, he's, just, he's kind of, he's cute, right? This is not cute Jesus. This is sword brandishing Hair white, eyes fire, he has something to say, and he expects his church to listen. 
And mo- more than anything, he's, he's depicted as walking in the midst of lampstands. And in Revelation, lampstand, a lampstand is an image of the church. So Jesus is walking in the midst of, of his church, assessing its spiritual condition, and he's not particularly happy. And his first message is, do not compromise your allegiance to me. So I just want to begin by saying this is going to be a little bit of a confrontational sermon because that's how Jesus appears to his church in this moment is a little bit confrontational. And what I want, if, listen, first, if you're not a Christian, this is a great, a great moment just to say, hey, what is the church? What does it mean to follow Jesus? A little bit of a, a window in. And if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, my invitation to you this morning is to take up, we're just going to make 2 Corinthians 13, 5 kind of our verse for our time this morning, which is where Paul wrote, to the Christians and said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. That's what Jesus is doing in Revelation 2 or 3. He's essentially inviting the church to assess, are you actually following me or have you given in to another vision of the world? And it starts with this message, do not compromise your allegiance to me. But here's the thing, to enter into that space of beginning to talk about compromise, uh, compromising our faith or accommodating or abandoning Jesus for an alternative vision of the world, to assess whether or not we are in the face, to actually spiritually assess the possibility of compromise in our own lives, there's two problems to that. The first is we all, as human beings, tend to surround ourselves only with voices who already agree with us. As Jonathan Haidt puts it uh, in his book, The Righteous Mind, that's sort of a a long expanse of how we tend to view this. He says this, our moral thinking is much more like a politician searching for votes than a scientist searching for truth. The problem is, of course, none of us think we do that. We all think we're the, but I am actually the scientist seeking for truth. And and Haidt's like, no, you're not. (laughs) We all surround ourselves with voices that already agree with us. And here's the thing, that's nothing new about human, that's what human beings have always done. But there is something new to our culture that makes this even more difficult, uh, which I think comes out well in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. And there's lots of things about that documentary I'd probably push back on. But one of the important parts of that documentary for us to understand is that the social media companies that we uh, often give our time to, they have one goal for us. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they have one goal for you, which is to get you to spend as much time on their product as possible so that they can sell you advertising, sell your own data and make money off you. So they, all of their algorithms are based on how can I get these people to waste as much time on our property or on our, our products as possible. So what they do is they then feed us content through our social media platforms that, conv- that, that aligns with our current thinking so that we'll go down those different rabbit holes and spend more time on their products so that they can make more money off of us. And so the, the reality then, which the, the documentary makes in ways I, I might even disagree with, but it, the broader reality, which is, is now pretty much universally agreed on, is that many of us, maybe all of us, what we do is we, we surround ourselves with people, with communities, with a, a social media feed, with podcasts um, that already agree with what we already think and won't challenge us, but will only confirm our thinking, which means we are shaped now. Our, our, the way of visioning the world is now shaped more by our social media fades, by podcasts, by cable news viewing, than by actual human beings we're in community with. And you think about the moment in which we're in. Many of, much of how we see the world now is shaped more by people who don't know who we are, who will never know us, who don't know what like our, our lot in life or our reality. And yet those are the most important voices to our 
lives. And this creates a problem for church community and following Jesus that I think Ronald Rollheiser in his book, The Holy Longing, names well. And he writes this before the, the realities of social media. He says this. And he's actually, he's speaking here to this tendency in the American church today to say, you know, I'm just, I'm religious, but I don't want the church, right? I, I want to be spiritual, but not religious. So I don't need church involvement to grow spiritually. And here's how he responds to this. He says, away from actual historical church community, whatever its faults, and he actually just, he's just named all of them. And there are lots of faults in church community. Away from actual historical church community, whatever its faults, we have an open field to live the unconfronted life. To make religion a private fantasy that we can selectively share with a few like-minded individuals who will never confront us where we most need challenge. In the presence of people who share life with us regularly, we cannot lie, especially to ourselves. I think what he names, that, that like in a sermon on compromise or accommodation, I have to start with is just the fact that most of us now, we surround ourselves with people who will only tell us what we want to hear. And when a presence shows up to say, I think you may be lying to yourself. I think you may have a blind spot. Our response to, the, to those moments is to remove that community, to go off and find a place of, that will only further confirm what we already thought in the first place. <clears throat> and what Jesus is doing here is saying, I want to confront you on some things, church. And that's really hard to do in the context of spiritual community. So my, my, my question for us this morning as we begin, I mean, we haven't even entered into the tough stuff yet, is can we enter the confronted life this morning? Can we let Jesus confront us this morning? Because here's the deal. You're going to meet Jesus, white-haired, eyes fire, uh, sword coming from his mouth. You're going to meet that Jesus at some point. I, I think you should meet him before it's a moment of judgment. And now when he's inviting you into spiritual community, into community with him. So that's one problem with the Sermon on, on Compromise. The other problem with the Sermon on, on Compromise is just the nature of how, we, how compromise even happens for us, which is, my, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, my guess is you would say, yes, accommodation and compromise are incredibly important threats that we should all be aware of. But here's the problem. When we begin to fall into compromise, we always have really compelling arguments and reasons for why the compromise is okay. In other words, like no one compromises in faith of Jesus by saying, you know, I just want to abandon my faithful witness of Jesus and just abandon him and take up something that's false. That's not how it happens. How it happens is, actually, this is what's true. Jesus actually meant this, or this is what's actually reality. Which means, if any of us right now were involved in some sort of compromising our allegiance to Jesus, one, we would have already surrounded ourselves with, with seemingly Christian voices that are confirming those opinions for us in the first place. Two, we would be incredibly defensive about those facts, about those things, because we see them actually as, as faithfulness to Jesus, not compromise. And three, we would just get personally, spiritually defensive to anyone who brings confrontation into our life, making us more likely to stop listening to that person and remove them from community, rather than to actually hear and think and reflect on, am I lying to myself? And that's why the refrain in Revelation 2 through 3, Jesus says one thing to every church in every letter. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's Jesus basically saying, first of all, some of you will not have ears for what I'm about to say. You're, you will not listen to me. And two is... Uh, 
is an invitation to, to those of us who are listening to recognize in ourselves it's hard to actually hear the voice of Jesus. It's hard to actually shut out voices that are false and listen to the one voice that is true. And so this morning, I, I hope we can have an honest assessment because like I said, what we're seeing in the American church trends today is that there's something radically wrong with the church's engagement with the world around us. But here's the good news. The primary way the church is compromising uh, in Revelation 2 and 3 is incredibly, it's something not, no one in here is struggling with. And so we, can, so we can go back to a place of agreement, which in Revelation 2 through 3, when Jesus is saying, don't compromise your allegiance to me, what he's primarily uh, getting at here is that people in the first century church were beginning to, uh, to worship the emperor of Rome and to justify that in the church community. So my guess is no one in this room has built an altar to the emperor Domitian in your living room, which means we can, we can now maybe enter into some common ground, some co like view from a distance what they were struggling with before we begin to ask what might we be struggling with when it comes to compromise. And so uh, I think that the, the reality of what Jesus is pushing back is best, uh, is best summarized in verse 20 of Revelation 2. This is the common theme through both letters that the church is beginning to compromise itself by worshiping the emperor of Rome. So Revelation 2, verse 20, in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is to teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, it's okay if that's, that's not clear. Here's what that verse is in reference uh, to. The seven letters uh, written to the churches in Revelation, they're all in the same part of the world. They were all in a part of the world called Asia Minor. And that's important because at this time, which is, uh, I think Revelation was probably written around 95 AD. Uh, and if you want to know why I, th I think that, uh, there's a podcast you can listen to from our first week of the Revelation class. But I think Revelation was written around 95 AD. And at that time in Asia Minor, what was beginning to happen was a number of the cities in Asia Minor were beginning to build temples and make important to their local cities uh, the emperor cult, or what, what we would probably say, although they wouldn't say it like this, worship of the Roman emperor. So one example is the city of Ephesus built a really big statue to the emperor Domitian, who was the emperor of, uh, of Rome, the time Revelation was written, and people were expected to go and, and worship and, and pay homage to that statue. Ephesus is one of the letters that's, or one of the cities addressed in uh, Revelation 2. And three, and so th that might weird us out, like how weird is that? People who worship political figures, right? People who have such reverence for political figures, you can't criticize them or you can't push back on them in, in any way. You actually worship them in devotion. Like that sounds weird um, to, to us. But if you're in that day, this is what's going on. What's going on in that day is, listen, if you're a, kind of a, a moderately important city, but you want to become really important, well, show, show your outrageous devotion to the person in power. Build them a statue. Build them a temple. Make people in your city show their devotion to that emperor. And that's exactly what's going on is these churches and or these, these cities in Asia Minor want more political power and sway. And so they are building an emperor cult out, forcing their citizens to then pay homage or to, to make sacrifices to these, uh, to these emperors. And that created an enormous problem for the church. And it's addressed all through Revelation 2 and 3. But what's important for us is when I say temple, you probably think, oh, it's like a church. But temples weren't like churches 
in that day. Temples is where all of the life of the city happened. Temples is where you, met, uh, you made business deals. Temple is where the economic life of the city happened, which is what created the dilemma for Christians. That to participate in the economic life of most of these cities, you had to go to the temple and you had to participate in those sacrifices. And so I think uh, Larry Hurtado in his book, The Story of the Gods, he, I think, helpefully in a couple sentences, summarizes how important these temples were to, city, to, the, to the life of the city, to the economy of the city. Here's what he writes. In short, the ancient temples represented a significant sphere of economic activity, and so any denunciation of the gods, any withdrawal from their worship, or even the threat or prospect of this, would have been seen as threatening to the many with vested interests in various components of the operation of temples. So here's the problem that Christians found themselves in, is the Bible explicitly forbids offering sacrifices to other gods in other temples in any way, shape, or form. You cannot go and, and have a piece of, of food and offer it up to a god and then eat a meal in the presence of it. You could not do that. Which meant Christians in these set, seven cities, Christians in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, they all had this, a, a very difficult choice in front of them. Allegiance to Jesus and withdrawal from these temple activities, which almost certainly meant, first, you'd lose your job. You maybe could not make money anymore because you could not participate in the economic life of the city, right? You, would, you wouldn't be hireable. All, all the way down to potential arrest and ultimately death because you refuse to participate in these things. And we see this all through Revelation 2 and 3. So some churches st stood firm in this, and there's two of them in, in the seven letters. It's uh, the letter to Smyrna and Philadelphia. Jesus has no critique for those two churches and only praises them for the ways they've suffered for the name of Jesus and promises to be present with them because they're going to suffer more. And then there's the other five churches, all of which have compromised themselves in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus, white-haired, flame-fire-eye, sword-brandishing Jesus, is saying, I'm walking in the middle of you, and I have something to say. And a summary of what he says could be, uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2, and what he says to Pergamum. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. And the them there is false Christians in the church community. I war against them with the sword of my mouth. So when, when Jesus is depicted as a, a sword coming out of his mouth, that's not for non-Christians. That is for people who claim to be Christians and are compromising their allegiance to him. And Jesus is like, I have a sword, and you can use that sword either. It's a two-edge. I can use that sword either to cut away all that's false in your allegiance to me, or that sword is coming against you in judgment. Those are your two, your two choices. So that's, that's the moment that they were in, which, again, is, is easy for us to sort of sit back and say, why would you ever worship to the emperor of Rome? That's so silly, especially 2,000 years of history. Rome doesn't even exist like this anymore. Why would you compromise your allegiance um, in that? And so that, that's this is the easy part. But, but to pull back and just to begin to meditate on the question, if Jesus were to, were to walk in the midst of us with a sword, concerned about our compromise or our accommodation, what would he write to us about? Where might we, the American church, today's day, where might we be in danger of compromising our allegiance to Jesus and our witness to his kingdom? Where are we at danger of abandoning 
Jesus is king and serving something or someone else. So here's, here's how I want to I approach this, this question for us. Because <clears throat> like I said, I actually don't, I don't know the church is even in a condition to begin to hear some of those things. Yeah, so what I, I want to actually do is, is paint a little bit of a picture of the church community from 100 to 300 A.D. And to give you an answer to the question, why it grew in such explosive growth. And the, the most helpful resource I've come across to, to explain that um, is this book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado. And the reason I'm holding it up is this is a scholarly work, right? So if, if you know, you need pictures, this is not, this is not your book uh, for you. But this, this is a scholarly book, and I'm not kidding, this book brought me to tears this summer. And I, I gave my wife like a one-minute download. She started crying this week. Because the early church community, in the midst of its suffering and persecution, was such a beautiful alternative to the world. And what Larry Hurtado does, which he's not, listen, he's not a conservative, like, evangelical Christian by any means. But he says the early church had five qualities where they, they were distinct, where they refused compromise to Rome. And they created a community that Rome initially hated. They hated those five qualities in Christians. But those five qualities were so beautiful, so compelling, so rich. Over time, the church literally conquered the Roman Empire through those five things. That's, that's the case he makes through the course of the whole book. And so I want to run through those five things. And the first, he says, the, church, the early church had a consistent pro-life ethic. That there were two practices common in Roman culture, both abortion and exposure. And the practice of exposure, we're familiar with the practice of abortion, obviously, in our culture, but the practice of exposure was this. If you had a child that you didn't want to keep, uh, maybe it was born with uh, some kind of defect, or maybe it was born the wrong gender, or maybe you just didn't want any more, you didn't want a kid. Uh, what you would do with those, those children is you sometimes would take them into the wilderness, leave them out there to, expose, to be exposed, to die, or just in public places sometimes left to be exposed, to die. And Christians condemned both the practice of abortion and exposure unrelentingly and without compromise. But it's not just that they condemned the practices. Christians actually would go and, and take children who were left to exposure and adopt them into their families. And, and Rome found this just outrageous and offensive and bothered them. The Christians had this ethic. And Hurtado goes on to say, listen, today, uh, even though the, the question of abortion might be a little bit different, Today, we all, as, like our society assumes human rights for all human beings. Roman society did not assume that, but the church did. And despite these two common practices in Rome, the church said, no, that is not a sign of the kingdom of God, and practiced a consistent life ethic that over time created a beautiful alternative community to that of Rome. The second quality that uh, Larry Hurtado gets into is that the church had a consistent biblical view of sexuality. Uh, one of the earliest Christian writings that we have uh, is, is a, a letter written to someone named Diognetus, uh, and he writes this of Christians. He says of Christians, any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, whatever it may be, is a foreign country. Right? Our home is the kingdom of God, not whatever nation, culture, city we live in. Our ultimate home is the kingdom of God. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them, what I just mentioned. And they share their meals, but not their wives. Uh, see, in that day, the Roman uh, ethic around sexuality was very much like our own ethic um, today. And it was very exploitative, especially to women and to slaves. Men basically had free reign with what they wanted to do. And, and Christians condemned those practices. 
and said that, that marriage and sexuality go together between a man and a woman. And despite what was common in Rome in that day, which led to, uh, to the exploitation of slaves, led to the vulnerability of children, led to, to a lack of stability of families, Christians condemned those practices without compromise and created, Larry Hurtado would say, such stable families and such an alternative picture of what marriage could look like that over time, despite the fact Rome saw that as backwards and weird and, and ridiculous, over time, that created a beautiful alternative community to the world and literally made Rome Christian. The third distinctive of the early church community that Larry Hurtado names is, is care for the poor. Uh, in the 4th century, uh, an emperor, uh, Julian the Apostate, who was one of the uh, emperors at the tail end of, of Christian persecution, wrote, a, wrote this about Christians. This is atheism, which actually that's how they referred to Christianity, was atheists. Because Christians didn't worship or believe in the, the Roman gods, they were named atheists. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. That's sort of a reference to Christians who were, who at this case were many Jews as well. Um, it's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. There's not a single Christian in poverty. That's what, that's what he's saying. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. I mean, early Christians did something that is incredibly, incredibly rare in a society. As a, a, a theme that runs all the way through the Hebrew Bible and through the Hebrew prophets, a theme that runs straight through the, the ministry of Jesus, was that in Christian, or Christianity, the early church, one, if you were a stranger, so if you were an immigrant, a foreigner, someone who was mi of minority status in your community, Christians advocated for them. And then if you were poor, if you didn't have material resources, and you were in the church, first the church took care of you such that need was no longer described of you. And, and secondly, even if you were outside the church, Christians were so generous towards the poor that a, an emperor who persecuted Christians and hated them says that they were so generous towards the poor they took care of our own in ways we should be giving. So Christians, as they embrace the teachings of the Hebrew prophets and Jesus, in whom there is a prominent and long theme of how easily it is for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner to be oppressed in societies, the church was a voice and a community for them. And Romans saw this generous advocacy and financial stewardship towards the poor and over time saw such a beautiful alternative community. The church literally conquered Rome. Fourth, and uh, the final one I'm, I'm gonna name now, uh, Distinctive of the early Christian community was what Larry Hurtado says, it was a multi-ethnic movement. That the early church was not primarily made up of one ethnicity. It wasn't primarily Jewish. It wasn't pr primarily Asian or African or any, which is even where the term Christian comes from is the fact that as the church expanded out, because it wasn't connected to a nationality or an ethnicity, which is typical of most religions, is only tied to one culture, people didn't know what to call Christians. So they call them little Christ, they call them Christians. And Hurtado actually makes the case that the multi-ethnic makeup of the church is one of the, one of the two reasons Rome was so threatened by the church and turned violence against the church. Because here's what's interesting. Like, I, I think, at least I used to have this assumption that Rome just persecuted everybody they didn't like, especially religious minorities. That's not true. Uh, Larry Hurtado makes the case that 
only Christians were persecuted by Rome. And he says this in a couple of ways. He says this, uh, a couple of quotes. There was not anything like the repeated and increasingly hostile stand taken by the Roman authorities against early Christians. Another quote. Granted, early, the treatment of Christians varied from place to place, from emperor to emperor, but the combination of popular abuse, cultured critique, and official repression across the better part of three centuries, locally at first and then empire-wide toward the end, has no parallel. No other religious minority was persecuted like the church. And yet... The church grew from 10,000 Christians in 95, you know, around 180 to 5 to 6 million. And Larry Hurtado says it was their consistent life ethic, it was their view of sex, it was their care for the poor, and it was because it was a multi-ethnic movement. And so Hurtado actually says the two reasons the church was persecuted, one is because they refused emperor worship, right? So this, me- this message of confrontation Jesus gives in Revelation 2 and 3, it clearly landed, and the church ceased these practices in the coming future, and secondly is its multi-ethnic nature. So here's what Hurtado writes. Early Christianity, because it was programmatically trans-ethnic in its appeal, in other words, it was not attached to a particular culture or nation, and more aggressive in attacking what is called idolatry, right, no emperor worship, was a new and more serious danger. And he goes on to detail, that's why it was persecuted. The Christianity brought people in Rome together in a way that no other movement had. And has since. It turned people from different cultures, backgrounds, ethnicities into Christians. Christianity was not a tribalistic religion. And just imagine how difficult that, that must have been. People who are rich, people who are poor, being in communities together. People from different cultural backgrounds, denying their own, their own views of the world to enter into an empathetic space to hear from people who look and experience the world different from them all while being killed for this. This is why I got to the end of that book, man. I just moved to tears. It's a scholarly book. I'm weird, man, but I just read that and it was like, I long for the church. What, who would not want to be a part of a movement like that? A movement that's consistently affirming the dignity of all human life. A, a community that, uh, that holds families together with a view of sex that is, is not exploitative. A view of the poor where we deny ourselves to serve those around us, a view of the world that allows people of all cultures and ethnicity to gather in community together. Christi- Christianity, Hurtado points, was uncompromising and would not bend its knee to any of these elements of Roman society that found them to be backwards and weird and worth oppressing. They were unyielding and uncompromising in those four, in those four categories. And I think those four categories throughout church history remain good categories to assess our own spiritual health. Just look at the broader American Christian landscape. How are we doing in being a consistent pro-life movement? In having a view of sexuality that is biblical, tied to scripture and not tied to culture? In a view of caring for the poor that leads to incredible self-denial, such that non-Christians would look at us and say, they are so generous, they take care of our own as well as theirs. And fourth, a movement that is multi-ethnic in nature, where our experience of Jesus and Christianity is not tied to people with only the same cultural background that I have. And here's the thing, I recently listened to a pastor I respect who said, in the vast majority of American churches, you can only talk about two of those four. And if you try to talk about all four, 
there's just going to be fights and tension and disagreement. It's very, very hard to talk about all four of those things robustly, where Christians will gather and listen to one another eagerly, patiently, expectantly. And why is that? Why is what was so central to the early movement of Jesus actually not even something we can talk about as a church today? And there are lots of reasons for that, which I'm not going to get into. I just want to ask the question and let it sit. Because if you look at the world of Christianity today, places where you can hold all of those four things together, the global south, Africa, South America, the church is exploding in growth. And places where you can't, the church is dying. So ultimately, the, the question I want to spend the rest of our time on, uh, leaving those contentious issues behind, is, so how, what's the antidote to, com- to compromise, to accommodation? And there's two thoughts. The first is the last thing Jesus says to the churches, which is Re- Revelation 3.20. I love this. Uh, I, don't lo- I shouldn't say that. This is, this, is pretty, this is pretty sad when you think about it. Jesus, the last word he speaks to the church which again, uh, even though it's seven letters to seven different churches, this is to the church universal. So this is his final word to the church before we get the revelation, before we get the, the strange stuff. Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now that's a fun quote to like try to get people to convert to Christianity, and, which is great and it's true to some extent. But actually what that quote is, Jesus is saying, Hey church, you kicked me out and I'd like to come back in. Can I come back into my own church and be the king and set the agenda and lead you forward? If you, if you just open the door, I'm, I, I will come right back in. But you, will you open the door? So we just have to recognize, like, is Jesus actually the voice and the, the, the pace setter for what we believe and practice as Christians? And then secondly, the other, the other antidote to compromise is, is there's one reason we typically compromise, which is, is comfort. It's self-protection, right? It's avoidance of suffering. And here's the second message Jesus has for the churches, which is, is a hard one, right? So message one, where we spent most of our time, do not compromise your allegiance. Message two, Jesus has for all seven churches, is you will suffer for my namesake. As I mentioned earlier, there are only two categories of, of the seven churches. The two churches who have been faithful to Jesus, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia, and then the other five, and the two that have been faithful, they've suffered. And the five, if they start obeying Jesus, they're going to start suffering. Which is why Jesus, his message to the church is, listen, there's just no way around it. You're going to have to suffer for my name. And he says to Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer, but be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. But here's the irony. Like Jesus calls us to suffer in a very ironic way. Because there's one word that's used throughout the seven letters that, that sort of clinch each seven letters. That each letter ends with the phrase, to the one who conquers. Right? So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're all going to suffer. And I'm calling you to conquer. Right? Which seem like two completely contradictory words. Which means we need to understand what is this word co- conquer. And here's the good news for you. You actually already have this word memorized in Greek. You already know this Greek word and you have it memorized. Because the Greek word is nikao. Or in American, it's, it's Nike. Just do it. Nike, Nikao, conquer. To the, to the church that conquers. And this is how Richard Bauckham defines that word, conquer, Nikao, through the rest of Revelation. 
He writes this. He says, if we must translate the call to conquer into literal terms, we could say that it requires every Christian to already accept the martyrdom that faithful witness may incur. Are we willing to bear witness to the kingdom of Jesus all the way down to death? And so here's the thing. We're in such a bigger advantage than the first church, first century church was of reading this because we, we saw Revelation 2 and 3 fulfilled. It's happened. The early church conquered Rome. And how did they do it? By suffering. By heaping on shame and embarrassment because they were uncompromising in the way in which they lived. And the fifth category Hurtado gives for why the church grew exponentially and was such an alternative community was they loved their enemies. They loved their enemies. The most quoted verse from the early church is not John 3.16. It is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They loved their enemies. And through that love, they like literally took down the most powerful, imperialistic, unjust society that, that existed at its time, Rome. They, they overcame it. They conquered it through suffering. And they did it because their allegiance was to Jesus and to his kingdom above all other kingdoms. And so they created a beautiful alternative community that upheld the dignity of all human life, that cared for the poor in powerful ways, that treated the marriage bed with purity, that was multi-ethnic in its makeup, that loved its enemies. And none of that should surprise us because all of that makes up who Jesus was as a person. He did all of those things. Those are all central things to his ministry. And I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put this in his book, Life Together. Jesus Christ in the, lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in seclusion of cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his or her commission, his or her work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. But Jesus died to bring peace to his enemies, which before we start thinking about other people, that's you and me. Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He has died for, uh, to, make, to bring peace to us, which then means the central vision of the Christian life Right? It's not power and domination and authority. The central vision of the Christian life is suffering to bring peace to my enemies. It's why the early Roman church exploded in growth. It's why there are Christian communities exploding all over the world in growth. And it's why there's some Christian communities that are dying. That Jesus, this man and his community, conquered Rome through suffering. It's his vision for us in this community. Should we choose allegiance to him? Father, it's no easy thing to have Jesus point a sword at me and say, let's, let's talk. And yet we know because of the person that he was, that he went to a cross for us, to die for us. He has our good and our love and a vision for us in the church that is really beautiful. And so we want to live into that. We want to be that. Whatever that looks like, whatever that is. 
And so would you help all of us right now, God? Would you let Jesus, if we are, if we are Christians, would you let Jesus in to speak some hard things that we need to hear? And if you're, we're not a Christian, God, I hope the, the beautiful alternative of what Jesus has offered to this world, which is no longer power or authority or domination, but it's instead self-sacrificial love to his enemies, that they might know peace. If someone doesn't know the peace of God this morning, God, would you, would you give it to them?